Good morning. Welcome. Greetings. Hello. Hola. Bienvenidos. Hi there. And greetings to those who are watching online. Look forward to when we can all be together as a church family again. If you're here for the first time, welcome. My name is Mark Mullery. I get to serve on the pastoral team here, and I get to bring the um, sermon this morning. We're in a series from John's Letters. Uh, it's called Life Together. And um, before I, uh, before we hear the text and we jump into the message, I just wanted to mention, I've been uh, forgetting to do this, but we have a commentary. If you'd like to have a book to help sort of open up these passages as, as we go along, um, we have a commentary in the bookstore by John Stott. It's just called The Letters of John. Uh, someone recently asked me, who, what's my favorite book? And I couldn't come up with one, but at the top of my list, um, John Stott's commentaries are just, they've just been golden to me. They've just been life-giving. They're a wonderful blend of um, a very wise and knowledgeable theologian and a very experienced pastor and follower of Jesus. So this little Letters of John, uh, you, you might want to pick that up as a, as a companion as we go through this series. And even though we're in chapter 3 here today, we're, we've got a ways to go. So... Um, There'll be plenty of time to use that. This morning we're in 1 John chapter 3 and verses 4 through 10. And Melanie Taylor is going to read our scripture for us this morning. Thanks, Melanie. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, and he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. God, let's, let's pray. I'm going to pray from Psalm 119, verse 29. O oh God, put false ways far from us and graciously teach us your law. God, as we assemble on the Lord's day, we look to you and appeal to you. We know that we live in a world that's in rebellion against you. We know that we live in a sea of lies, false ways. We pray that you would barricade to us the roads that lead to nowhere. Block off the paths that are dead ends and lead us in the way that leads to you. Lead us, Lord Jesus, as you are the way. Lead us in your way and graciously teach us your law. We do not know left to ourselves the right way to go. We need your voice we need your illuminating work in our hearts by the power of the Spirit. 
We need your law. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Leslie and I recently got to go to the beach, and so I've probably got beach on the brain, and so I've got an opening illustration about the beach. Um, I want you to imagine that um, someone owns a house at the beach and offers it to a friend to use for free. So this friend is delighted to take her up on that offer, and so he heads off to this beach house to enjoy himself. But as he does that, he completely ignores the house rules and the owner's wishes. So kind of picture what this might look like. Maybe he throws a big party, lots of friends come, window gets broken, lamp gets broken, things like that happen. Maybe his kids make a sandcastle in the hot tub. Maybe on his way out, he leaves the windows open and the doors unlocked and leaves the air conditioning running, doesn't bother to do any dishes or do any cleanup. In fact, on his way out, he grabs that coffee maker because he really liked how that worked and just takes that home for himself. So what's wrong with this picture? Well, this guy's using someone else's house, but he's not respecting the rules of the house and he's not respecting the owner of the house, right? He's not just sort of breaking some arbitrary rules, but he's, he's actually disregarding and disrespecting a person, the person who owns the house. Now, that's the situation into which this letter is coming. See, there was a group of people that had been in this, this group of churches. John is writing not just to one person or to one church, but it seems he's writing to a region of churches, and now it is Western Turkey. And He's, he's writing to these people, and in these churches, there had been a group of people who were claiming to be Christians, but they weren't living like Christians. They'd been trashing God's house while claiming to have God's approval. So what John is trying to do, as those people then had picked up and left, it, it had created confusion, doubt, uncertainty, and so... What John is trying to do is he's trying to give these Christians tools to discern the true from the false, the real from the fake. <laughs> so he's writing <clears throat> to equip them how to be able to distinguish what it means to truly be a child of God and what a false one would then look like. To do this, if you've been here for this series or if you're familiar with this letter, what he does is he gives them a series of what we could call tests. There are actually three tests. There's a social test. So you're looking at, at who you love. There's a doctrinal test. What do you believe? And particularly, what do you believe about Jesus? And there's this moral test. How do you live? Now, reading this letter, outlining this letter, I'll tell you, as somebody who's tried to do it, it's a maddening experience. And I, I finally realized this week, Reading this letter is kind of like watching clothes in a dryer, and they're just tumbling. And the thing keeps turning around and around, and the, you see the same things in there, but they're not always in the same place, collected with the same other things, or in exactly the same shape. But you're going to see the same themes over and over. And that's happening even uh, in, in, in this little passage. There's kind of like two cycles of the dryer as we're in this moral 
test, the moral test. How do you live? Who do you live for? Are you living, is the direction of your life, now you've got to get this right to understand what's happening here. This is about two different directions of life. One is a direction that goes in the, in the way of sin. The other is in the way of righteousness. So he's trying to help them distinguish these two ways of life and these two groups of people. To do this, what he does in these verses is he kind of offers a, a tutorial for sin. This is kind of a pathology of sin. If you want a little condensed, hey, what is sin? Where does it come from? How does it work? This is the place to go. Verses 4 through 10 lay this out for us. So what we have before us today is, is simply this. Healthy Christians and healthy churches must have a clear understanding of sin. We must have a clear understanding of sin. By that, we mean, what is it? Where does it come from? How does Jesus defeat it? And what should we do about it? That's what we find tumbling through the dryer in this passage. Stephen, I need to cough. Can you turn me off for just a second, please? Thank you. <coughs> All right, so we're going to approach this through asking these four questions. And the first question is this, what is sin? And we get a very concise answer. Keep your Bibles open or your screens on as we go through this. Look at verse 4 with me, please. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Hear that now. Sin doesn't lead to lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. There's an equation here. Sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness is sin. Now, this isn't the only definition of sin in the Bible. This isn't the only thing to know about sin in the Bible. But this is perhaps the most concise definition of sin in the Bible. And it's extremely helpful. Sin is lawlessness. So think about that. If sin is lawlessness, that means there must be a law. What is it? There must be a lawgiver. Who is that? This is so important. You cannot understand sin without understanding Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You can't understand your place in this world if you don't understand you're in someone else's house. This is God's house. He made the world and put us to live in it. He is the creator and the owner and the law giver. And so sin is defying his house rules and ignoring or rejecting him. In fact, I love the definition that the New City Catechism gives for this. Question 16 is, what is sin? And the answer is, Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created. Pause. Just think about that. We often think about sin in sort of a transactional, horizontal, well, I, I did this wrong or I hurt this person, I shouldn't have said that. But the first step to understanding sin is this. You live in someone else's house. And if you ignore or reject the owner of the house, that's the essence of sin. That's where it starts. So sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created. It might be serving another God, or it might simply be living as though there is no God. That's where sin starts. It's always vertical first. And so 
it's, it's not being or doing what he requires in his law. Now, a lot of times when people think about sin, sort of what comes to mind is some sort of atrocious evil, right? Some really terrible thing. And, and that's kind of handy to take that as a pathway because then we can let ourselves off the hook with thoughts like, well, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as, or I've never done blank. But hear this. Sin is lawlessness. And if sin is simply ignoring God while living in his world, if sin is failing to do what God requires in his law, well, that line stretches to each one of us, doesn't it? And it, it reaches out to not only those horrible, terrible things, but to those respectable sins that are easy to ignore as well. John is working hard to show us that this is a problem that applies not to just one person or one little group of people, but to all of us. I, I don't know if you picked this up, but as we went through the passage, did you notice the, the universals in this passage? Did you notice how often it says everyone, no one, whoever? I highlighted them for you here. Just in these, these verses, 4 through 10, can you see all that yellow highlighting in there? That's... Those are all these universal statements. And so here, one of them. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. If the direction of your life is in disregard to God, if you're rejecting the standards that he gives us to live by in his house, then you are in rebellion against him, and that's what sin is. Hear this. This is so important because so, so often our thinking about sin is very horizontal. But it needs to be vertical first because sin is fundamentally playing God. Sin is pushing God off the throne and saying, I'm going to take that seat for myself. Sin is always first against God. David got it right in confessing his murder, adultery, and abuse of power as king. He says this in Psalm 51, God against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, of course, he's aware of those other things, but he's saying in light of my sins against you, O God, those other things are secondary things because he understands and we must understand that sin is always first and most against God. That's what makes it so serious. It's lawlessness. It's defying the lawgiver, the owner of the house. Now, where does it come from? Look at verse 8a with me, please. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Now, if you know the story of the Bible, you might think that Adam and Eve were the first sinners, and they certainly were the first human beings to sin. But we need to remember that there was a snake in the garden. There was a tempter there who was tempting them into sin that he had already engaged in. He was the sinner who tempted them to sin. The serpent, this devil, this adversary of God, is, he is God's sworn enemy. It seems that he fell into sin and led a rebellion against God before Adam and Eve were created. Now today, being Halloween, if you're outside this evening, you may see someone in a red costume with a pitchfork 
and a, and, 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 and a tail. And, and we'll see, you know, these little devil costumes. And, and beyond that, that, that's really about the only thought that our culture gives to the, to the devil today. The idea that there's a supernatural being who's opposed to God, an adversary to God, and an adversary to all that God wants to do, and therefore an adversary to Jesus and all God's people, that's a pretty foreign, non-existent thought for many today. But it wasn't to Jesus. In fact, in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 44, teach, Jesus teaches us that the devil is actually the founding father of sin. He's the original liar. When he, the devil, Jesus says, speaks, he, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now think about that. Every lie that you encounter, every lie that you've ever uttered, every lie that circles around the world has a source and an author. It's God's enemy. He is the father of lies. All lies ultimately emanate from him. He lies about God. He tempts Adam and Eve to think that God isn't good. He lies about the world that they live in. He tempts them to think that they could be happier if they go their own way instead of going his way. He lies about the consequences. He says, you won't surely die, but they will, and they did. He's been doing this from the beginning of the world, and he's doing it today. And Jesus comes to destroy the devil's works. When you think about the gospel... How often does it come to mind, well, the gospel is Jesus coming to destroy the devil's works? I'll be honest, not often for me. But God's word tells us here that the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. You cannot understand Jesus' mission if you don't understand that there's an enemy, a devil, an adversary, who's working in the world, resisting all that God is doing. So what are these works that Jesus has come to destroy? What's he here to do? Well, let's remember, the devil is not constructive. He doesn't actually build anything. What he does is he corrupts and destroys what's there already made by God and made good. That's what he is. You know what he is? He's a parasite. That's all he can do. He doesn't actually create an alternative universe or an alternative kingdom so much as he creates a corrupted one. And so he takes what's good in creation and what's good in humanity and he twists it and pollutes it and corrupts it. He, he lies to us about God and corrupts our view of him. He, his lies usher into the world sin and sickness and death and destruction. His lies never deliver what they promise. Hear that. His lies never deliver what they promise. When you break God's laws, when you ignore God or reject him in his world, you will never find what you're looking for. The lie that's dangled in front of you of what you're going to get if you ignore God or reject him or ignore his laws, it's a lie and it never delivers anything but destruction and death. But we get tangled up in those lies, don't we? We're like a little bug caught in a spider's web. 
And the reality is, we can't get ourselves out of that web of lies. Part of the work of the devil is to leave us unable to be who we were made to be, to worship and serve God, to live rightly, in right standing with him. If we take God at God's word here, if we believe what he's saying to us, we will see that sin has a source and lies have an author. And it's not a harmless guy dressed in a red suit. It's a malevolent killer spewing deadly lies. So I want to ask you this morning, is your radar for the devil's lies switched on? Are you aware that there is a malevolent God-hater loose in the world spewing his lies? Are you alert to the possibility, to the likelihood that you in this moment have swallowed some half-truth that can be traced all the way back to the devil? We need to be alert to and suspicious of what we know and what we believe and how we know. We need this healthy suspicion of what we hear and what we think. And we must have God's word as the plumb line for what is true. Woe to us who try to live in this world without the word of God. Because the only way to know what's true. The only way for those lies to be exposed is not through human effort, not through scientific discovery, not through philosophical efforts. It's through revelation. It must be given to us by God. The only way out of that spider's web can't come from inside of us. It comes from God the rescuer. God who is the truth. God who does speak. God who one day will destroy completely this enemy. And that's what Jesus comes to do. Church, we must abide in God's word by the power of the spirit in order to expose and diffuse the lies that circulate around us and all too easily and too often in us as well. And that's what Jesus comes to do. That's the good news in this passage. Look at verse 5. You know that he, Jesus, appeared, came to be with us, was manifest, incarnate, in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. The dryer turns over and cycles again in verse 8, the second part. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Here's the problem. We are born with the desire to have our own way. This comes naturally to us, right? You know that, right? You, do you know that about yourself? That this desire to just ignore God and his world and do things your own way, do you know you don't have to be taught that, right? If you want to learn how to play the piano, what do you do? You have to practice, right? You need a teacher, you need some instruction, helps to have a piano, and you got to practice, right? If you want to be a sinner, what do you need to do? Just keep breathing, because it'll come naturally. I, I have kids. 
I remember we didn't have to teach them to say, no, give me mine. You're not the boss of me. Like, we never taught them to say it. They just like, it came naturally, just like it came naturally to me when I was a kid. Right? Because this is our default condition. The desire to have things our own way comes naturally to us. And oh, don't advertisers know that. We cannot fix this problem ourselves. We are unable to rewrite the operating system that says, I want it my way and I want it now. Help me get it or get out of my way. Because that's how it works in all of us. We must have outside intervention. And Jesus comes to take away sin. Jesus comes to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus, in whom there is no sin, is the only one qualified to take away the sins of others. He's the only one who can do that. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Don't you love that title for him from the beginning of chapter 2? Jesus Christ, the righteous, can satisfy the righteous wrath of God against sinners like us because he takes our place receiving the just condemnation that we deserve and imparting to us the righteousness of his perfect life. Don't you love that in him there is no sin? Don't you love that he is perfect? He's that third one Brent pointed us to this morning. And thank you, Brent, for doing that. He is righteous and perfect. And so he can not only take our sin away, but he can impute to us his righteous living before God so that that status can be given to us. And God, looking at us through Christ, can say, you are right with me. And in receiving then the power of the Holy Spirit, we change the directions of our lives and we actually begin to fulfill what we're called already, holy, right, righteous. We actually begin to live up to what God has already called us to be and said we are. Jesus makes this possible. Jesus shows up. He is incarnate. He's manifest. He appears to do exactly this. And while here, he goes toe-to-toe with the devil. The devil tries to get him killed when he's a baby. The devil tempts him at key points in his ministry. But Jesus succeeds where Adam and Eve failed. Jesus succeeds where Israel failed. Jesus succeeds where the disciples failed. Jesus succeeds where you and I have failed. Jesus shows up on earth and he defeats the devil every time. He is tempted just like you and I are. But he never yields to it. He never gives in to it. He never sins. And he then dies on a cross and rises again so that we can be born of God. That's what this passage says. We can be born of God. He gives us a fresh start. It's not a self-improvement plan. It's a death and resurrection plan. It's a new life plan. We can live righteous lives because God has put his seed in us, the passage says. What does that mean? 
It means that when the Holy Spirit comes to live in us, God transforms our hearts and gives us a new heart. God's nature takes root in us so that we increasingly want to live his way. We want to acknowledge him as the owner of the house. We want to worship and serve and honor him and live by his house rules. We want to invite others to come and know the wonderful owner of the house, this great creator and redeemer. This happens by this anointing that we heard about a couple weeks ago, by the spirit whom he has given us. So now we look forward to his second coming, his second appearing, because we know that as much as he's defeated the devil in his first appearing, the work isn't done yet. And when he comes back, he's going to throw the devil and all evildoers in the lake of fire forever. And the works of the devil will be destroyed so that Christ can make all things new. And won't that be amazing? And when he appears, we shall see him. And we shall be like him. Righteous, holy, pure, part of his family. God is teaching us here that there really are only two kinds of people. Those who are born into sin and those who start there but then are born again into the kingdom of God to become children of Christ. To be told that we're sinners isn't flattering, is it? To be told that we're children of the devil is even more insulting, isn't it? So we try to avoid the implications of these things. We convince ourselves there's good reasons for our sins. She pushed my buttons. Do you know what he said to me? We think of sin as something that someone else does. Oh, I hope, I hope so-and-so is listening to what you're saying right now, Mark, because they really need this. Or we... Avoid just facing the ugly reality that we're constantly breaking God's house rules and we actually deserve to be evicted from the house. But Jesus comes on the scene to get rid of sin. So, I ask you this morning, whether you're watching from home, whether you're here with me, has Jesus gotten rid of your sin? Or are you still living in it? There's no more important question. Jesus is ready to take away your sin. And he will do that for anyone who will humble themselves and admit to being a sinner and come to him for saving, forgiving, rescuing forgiveness. He is ready to give new life. He will take your sin away and give you a new life. Won't you come to him today? What should we do with all this? How shall we then live? Back up one verse, because I think verse 3, actually, the passage that Justin preached from last week, I think that sets up this passage just like the end of verse 10, loving your brother, sets up next week's passage. Verse 3 says this, Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who thus hopes in him 
purifies himself as he is pure. Hoping, we're hoping in that first appearing and what he's done and that second appearing and what he'll do. John Stott just captures this brilliantly. This is why I love this commentary. Listen to this quote. If Christ appeared first, both to take away our sins and to destroy the devil's work, and if, when he appears a second time, we shall see him, and in consequence, we shall be like him, how can we possibly go on living in sin? To do so would be to deny the purpose of both his appearings. If we would be loyal to his first coming and ready for his second coming, we must purify ourselves as he is pure. If we would be loyal to his first coming and ready for his second, we must purify ourselves as he is pure. So let me ask you this morning, what does that look like? What does it look like to live in the good of this passage? What does it look like to practice righteousness? What does it look like to pursue purity, to purify ourselves? Well, let me say it simply in John's language. We must abide in him. You must abide in him. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, John says. doesn't mean... It's a 100% perfect report card, but the direction of your life, if you're abiding in him, you're becoming more and more like him. How do we do that? How do you abide in him? Do you know how to do that? Have you, have you got that figured out? Can you talk about that? Do you have a strategy? Do you have a plan? Let me just give you a few connectors from, from this letter. First, we must abide in his word, and his word must abide in us. That's what he told us back in chapter 2. He said, what you heard from the beginning... This gospel, this scripture, it must abide in us. Hear this. We've, if you've been in this church for a while, you're probably thinking, Mark, you guys, you say this every Sunday. You're right, we do. Because <laughs> it's life or death. We must have his word abiding in us. Daily Bible reading is like a daily scan to expose lies and promote truth. Like a, it's like a scan of your soul and the world that you're going into. We, we must ask ourselves, what sins do I give a pass to? What, what could be talked about a community group that nobody would challenge? Is it sleeping with someone you're not married to? Is it drinking too much? Is it just grumbling and complaining? Is it mocking people with different political views or vaccination views or whatever views? What is it? And then we must say, oh, Lord, put false ways far from me and teach me your law. Every day, that reading of the word is like a course correction to expose lies and get us back on track in the truth. We must have the word. Second, we must pray. He says in chapter 1, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. We have wonderful fellowship with him. Let us read the word and talk to, to, to God about it. Talk to our triune God. Well, let us cry out in the midst of your workday, wherever you are, with whatever is going on. Oh, God, put false ways far from me. Help me, Lord. Walk in the way that is right here and now. Third, we must gather with the church as we're doing here today, those who are able to do so. And again, we look forward to everybody being able to gather again. We hope soon we gather to the, with the church to refresh and, and be refreshed. This is one of those ways we love the brothers, as we'll dig into more next week.
We need each other. We must have community. We need to love and be loved in community if we're to abide in him. And then fourth, having gathered, we scatter into the world. We abide in him out in the world. Jesus came into the world to bring salvation, and he sends us out with this good news. There's a way to be freed from the destruction of the lies of the enemy in this world. Jesus Christ came to take away sin, and we get to go and bear that message and live it out in our world. The word abides in us. We abide in God through prayer. We abide with one another in fellowship, and we abide in him as we go out as missionaries into the world. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Amen.